You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. My name is Frances Flanagan. I'm the research director at United Voice, and I'm also an associate researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Well, welcome everyone to the third of four panel events, Living in a Warming World. This is a series that was designed to bring together people who recognise the inexorably entwined nature of the challenges we face in climate change and rising inequality. Our intent here is to look beneath the national frame and to find people who are working and thinking on smaller scales, so at the level of the city or of the community or of the region or of a profession. These are the people who are getting on with the business of reimagining and fighting for a fairer future that is simultaneously more democratic, more equal and more sustainable. These are people who are not waiting around for national permission or policy to start the practical work of creating a fairer system, nor are they letting their imaginations be hampered by rigid institutional identities. So the theme for tonight's event is the challenge of making Australia's new energy system a fair one. Now, there is no doubt about the need to urgently transition from a fossil fuel to a renewables-based energy system if Australia is to play its part in avoiding catastrophic climate change. This shift from one energy system to another, however, isn't something we can understand in purely technical terms, like flicking a switch. It is human beings that built and operated the fossil fuel-based energy systems that we have, human beings with identities, communities, families, attachments, and it is human beings that will build and operate a renewables-based one. Different energy systems entail different uses of land, and space must be made available for wind and solar farms, solar panels and mills. Who should own and control these institutions and the energy that they create? How should energy be priced, and how should it be distributed? And how might we take into account differences in citizens' capacity to cope with extreme weather in improving upon the current system we have that currently imposes the heaviest financial burden involved in maintaining livable space on some of the people who are least able to afford it? In short, what might a progressive energy system look like? And how might we improve upon the market-based climate policies that have so dominated the field since the 1990s? With us tonight to discuss these questions are three distinguished speakers with a range of institutional and disciplinary backgrounds. To introduce them and lead our discussion, I'd like to introduce Chris Wright, who's Professor of Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney and one of the world's leading researchers on corporate environmentalism and its limitations. So please welcome Chris. Thanks very much, Francis. Uh, So, as as Francis just pointed out, tonight um, our speakers uh, and the panel discussion, we're going to be exploring this vexed and very politically timely issue of making the new energy system fair. Uh, And as we've seen over the last several years, energy has become the the new battleground in Australian politics as conservative political forces seek to push back against the rapid technological and market challenges that renewable energy pose to establish vested interests in the fossil fuel sector more generally. So a range of issues, and we've got three excellent speakers to address these. So our first speaker tonight is Dr. Amanda Carl. Uh, she's CEO of The Next Economy. Uh, originally trained in anthropology, Amanda has spent over two decades working with communities across Australia, Asia and the Pacific on projects designed to develop more equitable and sustainable local economies. Over the last few years, she's been working with coal and gas-affected communities in Australia to develop economic transition plans to move Australia closer to zero emissions in socially just ways. She has a PhD in human geography from the ANU, uh, an adjunct lecturer position from University of Queensland, and also helped found the New Economy Network of Australia. Our second speaker is Godfrey Mose. Uh, who is Assistant General Branch Secretary of the National Union of Workers in Melbourne. Uh, Godfrey is also a co-founder of the Cooperative Power Australia and writes regularly on issues of economic equality for publications such as The Guardian, Overland, Jacobin, The Griffith Review and New Matilda. Our third speaker is Joseph Scales, 
who's National Director of Solar Citizens, an independent community-based organisation aiming to grow and protect solar energy in Australia. Prior to joining Solar Citizens, Joseph was Secretary of the Australian Services Union in the South Australian and Northern Territory branch, where he was a champion in the union movement for a just transition from coal communities and led the ASU's work on the Repower Port Augusta campaign, uh, which has resulted in one of Australia's largest solar thermal stroke storage plants being built in Port Augusta. So the plan tonight is that each of our speakers will speak for around 10 minutes each, uh, followed by a short panel discussion and then around 25 minutes of questions and answers from the floor. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Amanda Carl. Good evening, everyone. Uh, as Chris said, I run an organisation called The Next Economy. And basically what we do is support communities that are dealing with economic change, but from a perspective of where are the opportunities to build stronger local economies that are also not just good for people, but also good for the planet. So that takes me to lots of different places in the world, um, but primarily in the last couple of years, I've been doing more work um, in regions where people depend on the fossil fuel industry for their work. Um, to talk to them about economic opportunities in moving to a zero emissions economy. So in this work, I'm seeing firsthand what impact the energy transition is having at a ground level. But I'm also seeing the potential transformative impact of the, tra of the disruption that we're in at the moment. I was going to be talking, um, I was originally thinking of talking about some of those stories on the ground and how this is impacting on workers and communities. Um, but I've decided to take a bigger picture view and talk about um, more the systemic changes that are happening as we move towards 100% renewable energy. And I want to talk about the justice implications of that. Before I get into the detail, though, I really want to thank the organisers of this series for focusing on questions of fairness, justice and equity. So often in this country when we talk about energy, it sort of the debate descends into discussions and arguments about technology or money. But the challenge isn't about technology or money. It's about political will. So I imagine you're a friendly audience, but in case there is in any doubt in anyone's mind, let me say unequivocally that we have all the technology we need to transition Australia to 100% renewable energy. And we can do it in as little as 10 years. Renewable energy can deliver a reliable and abundant supply of energy to all. And we can afford to do this in an orderly and managed way. We can do this. You don't have to take my word for it, though. You can check out the dozen or so reports that are done by credible universities like this one or by reputable think tanks like Beyond Zero Emissions. There's plenty of evidence out there. So the transition's inevitable. What is not a given is that this is going to be done in a way that enables us to take advantage of everything that the transition has to offer, particularly in terms of the social, economic and political benefits. At this moment in history, we're gifted with a unique opportunity to transform not only the energy system, but our economic system as well. Whether or not this transition leads us to a fairer economic system or consolidates and increases inequality, though, is not known. So I want to think through three pathways that could get us to 100% renewable energy and based on the current system that we've got from an economic perspective. So we have private corporations, the biggest generators at the moment. We have government-owned or publicly um, funded generators. And we, thirdly, we have small-scale community-owned renewable energy projects. All of them can deliver on 100% renewable energy but they do so with very different social, political and economic ramifications. So let's take them one at a time and just use this as a thinking exercise. So first, let's talk about private companies. They're the largest generators in Australia at the moment. And I guess if we think about how companies work, they see electricity as a commodity to be traded competitively to generate profits for shareholders. Increasingly, we're seeing private companies actually come out as champions and advocating for the transition to renewable energy. For example, we have AGL that's really leading the way um, in you know, standing up to government saying we need 
policy that's going to enable the investment to flow to renewable energy. And they're doing this because, in their own words, it makes good business sense. This is good news for the climate. Um, given the scale and their leverage, um, ability to leverage investment, they can get us there fast if the right policy mechanisms are in place to incentivise this. But as we've seen all around the world, there's also significant risk on relying on the market to deliver during times of disruption. In times of change, there's always a risk that we could actually end up with expanding the capitalist, capitalist control. This could leave Australia vulnerable to the kinds of problems we've seen in other places where basic services such as energy, water and even food have been more fully privatised, such as higher costs, less reliable supply, particularly in areas that are difficult to reach or in uh, lower socioeconomic areas. We've also seen the use of public money to then subsidise private profits. But even if we could ensure through regulation that this didn't happen here, there is a more fundamental question to explore. Given the potential of the technology we've got with renewable energy, which can decentralise and democratise both the production and the sharing of profits, why would we want to consolidate the wealth and power and often foreign um, interests? This is the question that's being um, asked by proponents of the second model that we've got in place, which is the government-owned generators. They're the second largest generators in Australia, or in Queensland, where I come from, they're actually the largest. Um, and at the moment, they operate in very similar lines to a private company. The union movement, we're seeing different parts of the union movement actually increasingly advocate for government ownership, though, as a way to get us to clean energy much faster. They argue that it would enable a smoother transition because it can be more managed from the government level. Um, it ensures universal access to electricity supply because it's a public good that everyone has a right to. And we could ensure that we actually have much better, decent working conditions and new employment and training opportunities, particularly in regional areas where it's needed most. They also argue that we could actually, instead of using money to subsidise the private sector as it's happening now, we could actually invest that in an income-generating asset for the future. So I must admit, from a justice perspective, this is sounding a lot better. But it's only going to work if we actually have genuine and strong political commitment to transition away from coal and gas, which, despite significant investments in renewable energy, still remains to be seen. The third business, op business model operating in the energy sector is the community energy model, where community groups build their own generally solar or wind farms. According to the Community Power Agency, we currently have over 90 community-owned renewable energy projects across Australia. Proponents of community energy argue that the, the very nature of the technology enables the kinds of decentralised decision-making and control that enables more equitable sharing of economic benefits by producing local jobs, making sure the money stays in the local area, funds community activities and that kind of thing. Underpinning this model are ideals such as climate justice, energy sovereignty, local resilience, participatory democracy and protecting the commons. So this is particularly exciting given the potential of this to address historical inequalities and also geographic um, disadvantages. So for example, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in remote areas could be among the first communities to actually benefit from everything that, economic, that energy sovereignty has to offer. So I guess it's the most radical of the economic models that I've just talked about. And it's the polar opposite of the business as usual in terms that it's smaller scale rather than larger scale, it's distributed rather than concentrated ownership, and it's localised production, consumption and profit sharing. However, there are not insignificant challenges to community energy projects that they still need to overcome. So from raising the necessary capital and having the expertise locally to dealing with the more powerful players in the energy market, and we've seen lots of barriers to people getting these projects up, off the ground. Furthermore, some would argue that community energy doesn't necessarily lead to a more equitable system and it could leave some communities even more energy insecure if we undermine the current centralised grid. So where does all of this leave us in the potential for a more just energy transition that ensures affordable and secure energy into the future? Well, at the moment we've got a mix of all three models and in some ways that diversity is maybe a key to resilience if we have the right policy in place. All three models can get us to 100% renewable energy. 
but there are some really important questions that we're not addressing in the public sphere that I think we really need to be talking about a lot more. For example, what are we actually talking about when we talk about energy? Is it a commodity that we trade? Is it a public good or an essential service? That, or is it a fundamental human right? Because how we think about energy is going to lead us down very different economic pathways. What do these three systems mean for how wealth is concentrated and distributed or distributed? Do these models foster greater democratic participation or do they leave us more vulnerable to inequality? And who do we want controlling a resource on which we all depend? Getting this right means the difference between consolidating the very same capitalist economic system that has led us to this climate crisis in the first place, or it could lead us to economic models that hold the potential to redistribute wealth and power in ways that leave us all much better off. How it's going to play out, we're going to have to see, but the choice is ours to make. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. My name's Godfrey, and uh, I'm what passes for a blue-collar private sector trade union leader these days. Um, I've been working at the National Union of Workers for just over 12 years now. We seek to organise workers in the farm and food sectors, some parts of general manufacturing, and warehousing and logistics. These are workers that are very much at the front lines of a changing climate. Workers who work in tomato glass houses in um, country towns around Australia. In fact, Port Augusta has quite a large tomato glass house uh, where there are workers there working on minimum wage, um, migrant workers who are on seasonal work visas, in a workplace powered by renewable energy, but in a workplace that can top 40, 50 degrees on occasion. Uh, I myself am organising a workplace, a manufacturing plant in Melbourne, where a lot of workers got together and joined the union because they were very disgruntled with the way the heat policy applied at that workplace. And that that summer that we'd come through had been, this last summer had been particularly harsh, uh, and the company weren't listen, listening to them about taking paid breaks and work time and slowing down the pace of work in stifling hot conditions. Uh, so we represent workers who uh, are facing a changing climate right now and are having the risk shifted onto them, whether that's keeping up the pace of production in a baking hot warehouse. Some of you might have seen a story a couple of years ago coming out of the United States where Amazon had out of one of its warehouses, an ambulance parked out the front because workers were uh, collapsing due to heat exhaustion and they didn't want to slow down the pace of work. And the solution was have an ambulance right there so that they could deal with those particular sorts of emergencies. Now, Australian warehousing isn't quite that bad, uh, but they still work very quickly in the Melbourne Amazon warehouse. So that's the context in which we, we find ourselves in at the National Union of Workers. And I had a delegate the other day, Colin, he lives in Brisbane, he works in manufacturing, uh, and we're having a chat about climate and energy. And he said to me, you know, Godfrey, we have a lot of issues that the company faces in terms of raw material costs and energy costs and everything else that we deal with. But the way that I see it, our company really only has control over one thing, and that one thing is wage labour, is the employment relationship. And all these problems that they face, they just try and solve them through the employment relationship. If the raw material costs are up, we're going to have to find a way to lower wages. If energy costs are up, we're going to have to find a way to lower wages. You get the picture. So how to deal with this has been something that, for me, while we don't directly represent a lot of workers in, in power plants and in the energy sector, we represent a lot of workers who are consumers of power in their own households uh, and who are in workplaces that are directly impacted by what's happening in the changing climate. 
uh, and it's a big issue for them. And a lot of our workers are a lot further in advanced than what they get credit for uh, in terms of the public debate. But the way that I see this, this issue is we do live in complex times, but it's the simple things that get you in the end. Uh, and there are some simple truths that we've got to remember as we navigate these complex times. Climate change is happening. It's driven by the way that we structure our economy and go about our activities. The solutions in technology are known and available. We can adopt the solutions in technology at the scale and speed required to the task. We can adopt such measures in a way that improves the material welfare of our people. Yet that's not happening. So the big question is really not, the big question shouldn't be how can we make it happen? The big question is why isn't the basic simple stuff happening that needs to happen at the scale that needs to happen? And I'd argue that the problem is capital's sovereign relation to you and I and us as living and breathing human beings. The problem is capitalism. There's no two ways about it. There's a lot of complex things that I could say, but I want to name the problem because if we don't address climate change at its root, then we're going to have other similar problems that crop up and occur. So we've been trying to do enough with the big picture stuff. We've been trying to work out, okay, what can we do as a union? What are the barriers and opportunities that we face? We had a delegates meeting in Melbourne the other day of general manufacturing delegates in our union to talk about energy and climate and work out what we're facing in our workplace, what we're facing in our lives and what we would do tomorrow if we're running the country and what we could do in our workplaces tomorrow with the amount of power and resources that we had at hand. And it was really interesting. Those, those delegates, we selected a small group of about 30 just to kind of trial having this conversation. Most of them had been impacted already um, through friends and family members suffering health impacts, particularly um, aged relatives in aged care centres. A lot of them had been impacted or knew people who'd been impacted by um, housing troubles, particularly with freak weather events and, and trying to uh, grapple with bushfires or floods. Uh, a lot of them had been impacted in terms of their bill shock and the cost of the bill that they were facing. A lot of them had been uh, impacted by redundancies at their workplace, uh, by cutbacks in their wages and conditions, with energy costs being one amongst a multitude of other excuses and factors. And what was really interesting about, about that conversation is they got it. They understood that this was an issue that we need to act on and do something on. There was one or two elements of, I guess, what you would characterise as, as a Trumpian ethic, but it, it, it was shallow, it was not deeply held, it was not widely held, and it only really came up in the absence of anything else. What the delegates attend, who attended that meeting at the end of the day wanted was they wanted a rapid rollout of renewable technology in a way that they weren't forced to bear the load or the cost of the climate crisis, which in reality ordinary people like us are doing already. They wanted agency and control over that energy system, whether that was social ownership expressed through government ownership, whether that was through cooperative ownership. And what they wanted to do, which we will find a way to do, but arguably there are some regulatory limitations, they wanted to bargain about the transition. The workplaces that, that we seek to organise are the workplaces you fly over when you come into an airport. They're those big warehouses, those big factories with the big, white, vacant roof space where our delegates want to do something. They want to be able to put up solar PV on those roof spaces. They want to be able to share in the benefits. They want to be able to bargain about it. Arguably, it's yet to really be tested, but arguably, 
bargaining about energy and climate is not permitted in this country with the industrial relations framework we have. So where I, what I'm getting to is the problem that we have with climate change is we're not going to have a new energy system unless we have a fair energy system. We're not going to be able to meet the transition unless we transition in our relationships because a piece of technology is just a piece of property and it's nothing unless you talk about the relationships that real people have in relation to that thing. And we've got to solve that. And until we solve that, we're not going to solve the climate crisis. So we've got members and workers who want to do something, who will do something, and they want to be part of the solution. And we're not going to have a solution to this if we sit back and we let the corporate and political elites fiddle around. Because in this country, ultimately, the people who run our country, and I mean that in the broad sense of the term, across our key economic and political institutions, are first rate at coming second, or even third. It's like that Aussie bronzed culture. So we're not going to get somewhere unless we have workers stand up as well. Thank you. Thanks um, to Godfrey and Amanda. Um, I could just say everything that was said prior, uh, I agree with, but I've got even more to, to challenge you with. I also want to um, acknowledge the, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As a new Sydney cider, it's both a, a, a privilege and you know, a, a difficulty to learn um, about the stories of the Gadigal people because um, of the challenges that First Nations Australians continue to face in this country. I, um, I'm going to start with a story about Sydney. So on the 7th of January 2018, Sydney, or one of Sydney's western suburbs, Penrith, was the hottest place on earth. The Australian Bureau of Meteorology reported that Penrith had the highest temperature on earth when it hit 47.3 degrees on the afternoon of 7 January 2018. Weather Zone said that in fact New South Wales locations took up at least the top three spots with 46.4 and 46.3 routing out the leader, leaderboard on that date. Of course, mainstream media uh, reporting on the sexy heatwave stat showed images of people enjoying the beach, splashing around in pools, and certainly most people would agree that that is a great way to spend a day like that if you can. No doubt many others stayed indoors and left their air conditioners blasting through the night to see through the worst of that heat. But as all of us here tonight know, summer temperatures aren't the only thing on the rise in Australia. Increasing electricity prices have also been a darling of our news cycles in recent times. And for good reason. In New South Wales, electricity bills have gone up by 45% in 10 years. In 2007, the average New South Wales household paid $1,184. By 2017, that skyrocketed to $1,720. During our blistering summer, uh, sorry, during our blistering hot summer in Penrith, um, when it was the hottest place on earth, some people didn't have the option of stepping out to their local beach or turning on the air conditioner. For some people, temperature control options, or let's call it what it is, climate adaptation options, are very limited. If you live in a poorly insulated home in a more affordable area, which are most likely to be one of the hottest suburbs or regions, that air conditioner, if you can afford to buy one, is a lifesaver. But air conditioners are costly to buy and expensive to run. Runaway temperatures and power bills are why more people than ever are turning to solar panels to power their homes. Latest figures show that 1.88 million Australians' homes and businesses have turned to solar PV to take back control of their bills and maintain a decent quality of life and experts agree that this figure is set to double over the next three years. Ten years ago, there were just 14,000 rooftop solar systems in Australia. Going solar certainly makes a big difference to the bottom lines. Um, 
uh, Finn Peacock, a chartered electrical engineer and, and formerly of CSIRO and founder of Solar Quotes, estimates that a five kilowatt power polar, uh, solar PV system, sorry, the average size that's installed at the moment, uh, will lead to savings of $1,600 per year for a household. Obviously, if you are economically disadvantaged, you would disadvantaged, you would want the benefit of reduced bills that solar panels deliver. In fact, you need the economic benefit of bill reductions. They're disproportionately going to be in fact impact the quality of life for low-income individuals and families. The truth is that some people can financially afford to face our increasingly hot summers more easily than others. They can afford the energy efficiency upgrades uh, needed in their homes. They can afford the higher power bills that come with more heating and more cooling. And they have the choice, control and resources needed to get solar panels for their homes and businesses. But some people don't and it's impacting their lives. As Australian Council of Social Services puts it, quote, for the estimated 13.3% of Australians living in poverty, energy affordability is a growing and, in fact, crushing problem. And if you're spending time at home during the day, unable to work because of your age, health, disability, or maybe you're unemployed and I'm able to find employment, then you're going to be using your electricity during the day when the sun shines. So the benefits flowing from free, the free power from solar panels could be even greater. But if you're at home on welfare or a low to middle income earner, you are far more likely to struggle with paying your energy bills and unlikely to be able to even afford today's cheaper solar panels. In 2017, the report Empowering Disadvantaged Households to Access Affordable Clean Energy, we learned that there are currently about one million people including over 731,000 children living below the poverty line in Australia. But the number of people who struggle with energy stress is likely to be more, much higher than the poverty figures. Plus, in Sydney, if you, the less you earn, the more likely you are to live in places where house prices are lower and further inland, away from the coastland, in areas which suffer from greater temperature extremes. And if you rent, you have fewer options again with a low level of control over the energy efficiency of your home and no say on the question of installing panels. Our estimates are in Western Sydney, 51% of people are renters. As we know, more people than ever are locked out of buying their first home. Indeed, for many younger people, it's no longer even a consideration. Census data shows that home ownership is continuing, continuing to decline with more people either carrying high mortgage debt or renting. Uh, the, um, the ABS's survey of income and housing indicates that owners represented 70.6% of all households in 1999 to 2000, falling to 672 in 2013 to 2014. Uh, the Hilda survey shows a decline with home ownership rates falling from 68.8% to 64.9% in the same period. And looking at individuals rather than households, Hilda shows a significant decline of over five percentage points from 2002 to 2014. In a 2015 article explainer, what's really keeping young and first home buyers out of the housing market, uh, Dr Judith Yates tells us that declines have been most dramatic among low to moderate income households, with only younger households in the top uh, quintile of the household income distribution have been relatively protected. So the younger and less wealthy you are, the more likely you are to rent. But there is almost no solar on Australians' rental rooftops, unless the home was previously owner-occupied. After all, there's no reason for a landlord to install a system as it's the tenant who would benefit from the lower bills. And tenants won't be paying $3,000 to $6,000 to install the solar infrastructure on a property they don't own, especially without a guarantee that they can remain there long enough to recoup the outlay costs. And that's, of course, if they rent a house. In Sydney, the option of living in a flat or apartment is steadily becoming the only one available. For these people, cost-cutting solar is even less of an option, with strata governance throwing up a minefield of obstacles to anyone thinking of going solar. No wonder Sydney and its closest neighbouring electorates rank lowest on solar uptake, 
across Australia. And this is why some councils, like the City of Sydney, are uh, investing in programs to try and respond to the issue of um, apartment buildings becoming more energy and water efficient. So on top of the reduced chances of owning their home or living in a house with a garden, poorer Australians and younger Australians are also not able to access the benefits of rooftop solar and are suffering through extreme weather conditions more harshly than others. But there are interventions that can be made to help open up the option of solar to more people. Buying solar PV for your home or business is a choice which delivers value to all of us. It supports the small-scale renewable energy industry, which is good for our communities. It reduces peak demand and puts more solar into the energy mix, which is good for our people and, our, and climate, and re reduces power bills and energy stress, a considerable thing when you consider how much we rely on electricity, how essential it is impacting every part of our lives. Not only that, rooftop solar has fundamentally changed our energy system. No longer is the generation of electricity concentrated in the hands of very few powerful corporations with a, ver a few large polluting plants, but it's in the hands of everyday Australians who are taking the power back both literally and figuratively. Installing rooftop solar democratises how energy is made and used in Australia, but we need to make sure that everyone can be part of it. Now that we don't have all the answers, I've definitely laid out a lot of the problems, but there is a lot more that government and the community can do. And it doesn't all necessarily cost money for government. For instance, there's support for households who cannot afford the upfront cost of solar to install it by providing no interest loans. There's a, a, establishing a public interest retailer that provides clean energy services for energy-stressed households. Introducing mandatory rental standards that will facilitate the uptake of solar, storage and energy efficiency. Help drive collaboratively designed, well-funded national indigenous uh, community solar power programs. There's communities in the Northern Territory which are currently the government spends a lot of money to uh, run off diesel um, generators. Uh, we can offer grants for strata companies to navigate the bureaucracy of solar for apartment buildings and solar gardens. Deliver a program of solar storage and energy efficiency upgrades for social and community housing stock. And build a personal favourite as a South Australian, build a virtual power plant that enable households to access clean, cheap energy without necessarily having to pay upfront costs while providing important energy infrastructure to the grid. The transition to a low-carbon economy, the transformation of our energy industry and responding to climate change these provide opportunities to reset inequality for consumers. Right now, it's one step each way kind of game, though. With the right level of government commitment, private sector innovation and creative problem solving, we can have a cleaner planet and a fair energy system for all. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much for our three excellent speakers. Could I invite you guys up to the table now? Uh, and we might have a, a quick panel discussion and then move to, to questions from the floor. So from those three excellent presentations, it struck me that it's fairly clear the technology is available around 100% renewable energy. And yet, as all three of you pointed out, we face this sort of log jam in terms of the politics uh, and the conversion from a sort of a dominantly coal-fired power electricity system towards something that is close to renewables. Um, Amanda, you spoke about the sort of the three models, but the corporate sort of model of energy production as the business as usual seems to, um, to dominate to date. Godfrey, you mentioned the problem being capitalism, in a sense, driving a sort of a, uh, a corporate sort of model of energy production and distribution. And Joseph, you pointed to this really important point, which I hadn't even thought about, of course, the limits of home ownership in terms of converting to, to solar PV more generally. So I'm just wondering if the three of you could reflect possibly on what struck me as the way in which the forces pushing against the conversion, the transition to renewables, have been quite clever, I guess, in the way they've demonised and framed renewables. And I'm talking about not just the sort of the conservative side of politics, but also the media. Um, and it strikes me there's sort of messages there around how renewables are painted as not sufficient or not there technologically yet, 
um, the baseload coal is the essential thing we need to get back to, um, the way in which the, the current government has created this uh, national energy guarantee sort of model around pricing of, of energy and reliability and pushing the climate change to one side. What, what do you think about the way the political debate around um, the move towards renewables has been presented in, in the last five years and, and how can we overcome this sort of political logjam? really astounds me around the politics and it gets back to a point that Godfrey made is every community that I work in, including communities where coal mining is a major source of livelihoods, people on the ground are saying, this is just common sense. Like, why, why aren't we doing something about this? And, you know, this happened... The reason I got into this was in, in 2014, I got invited up to Mackay um, when the coal price was down and had been down for about two years. And I was asked to do a presentation beside Tim Buckley, who talks about the end of coal, looking at the markets. And for once, people were listening to him. <laughs> and so I got a phone call, a panicked phone call, um, saying, can you come up and talk about what communities can do about it? Because we don't, we don't know what to tell them. And basically went up, talked, and I went back a second time because my email inbox was flooded and my phone kept ringing from people saying, don't tell anyone I'm, I'm doing this, but we need you to help us around this question of the economy. I organised 12 meetings by the end of the week, spoke to 54 people, and they were heads of the Chamber of Commerce, heads of the sugarcane industry, people who worked in coal mining, and they're all saying the same thing. It's like, we don't know what's going to happen with the coal industry. Let's take the politics out of it. This is about our economy and our community in the future, and renewable energy just makes sense. Like, why, why aren't we doing it? And yet... Four years on, up in North Queensland, I was in Townsville um, a few weeks ago, there are 26 large-scale renewable energy projects on the books. Townsville is the heart of support for the Adani coal mine. People do not know that there, there's 26 projects on the books, there's 12 projects under construction in the pipeline already starting to happen. Nobody knows about those jobs, it's invisible. Mm -hmm. And it just astounds me. Then I get invited to talk to ministers and you know, political advisors and they say, oh, do you think people are ready to, to talk about this yet? I'm like, you have a political mandate to, to be supporting this and to transition. So it just astounds me. I just, I do not get it. It's, it's yeah, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo what Amanda said. In our delegates training last Monday, there was a moment where uh, a, dele a delegate of ours, he works in a pharmaceutical, uh, for a large global pharmaceutical manufacturer, and he put his hand up and he said, oh, yeah, my, my son works in construction. Um, he helps install wind turbines. There's a lot of these jobs coming along the line. And that really... Um, help set the scene for the whole day and the whole discussion. But I think, I mean, what's going on is just essentially classic reactionary politics uh, in a way that where it can be effective, uh, disturbingly so, where it picks on something, the classic reactionary politics picks on something that is real in someone's everyday lived experience. So, um, for instance, the bill that you get and you open it up or you open up the email and you see the number on the bill and you try and work out how you're going to pay that bill and particularly if you're not sure how many shifts you're going to work that week, uh, it is a problem. Except in classic reactionary style, rather than going to the deeper structural issue that's driving that bill shock, the privatisation, the inaction, the extracting the maximum amount of profit from an outdated resource, the reactionary posits an alternate villain that fits in with their story and the story kind of makes sense because there's a villain and there's a lived experience and that plays out in every form of reactionary politics, that same story, so it should be no surprise we're getting that story. Mm. Um, I I'll try and say something positive because I realised as I was reading my speech was quite a bit down and out. But the, um, the, the, the message of hope, I think, is what Amanda said embedded in everything that Godfrey said earlier, which is that in, um, outside of the political class and, and the, the media cycle, there are people who are talking about this, thinking about this um, in perhaps surprising places. I mean, I was before 
work in, in this role, elected leader of a union representing coal workers um, and and workers in gas-fired power stations. And um, and I was re-elected despite um, having a very clear um, discussion with that workforce about the need to transition in an orderly way. And um, and that was understood. But the problem is and uh, was for us and, and in Port Augusta in South Australia in particular where where the last coal-fired power station in South Australia was that we had um, we had dishonesty from uh, from the owners, and um, I think that's another layer to this problem. Is that I literally the week before it was broken on the front page of the advertiser that the the, the power station was closing within a year. We uh, this is three years ago, four years ago maybe. We told it was open until 2030 by the executives. I sat at a table with them as they told us this. So I guess, I guess the reason I say that is that it's very hard to, um, to you know, if we, if we assume that the media and, and uh, um, the political class kind of follow the mood, um, in between what's happening down on the ground, there's a whole lot of chatter which isn't based in truth and which is based on people's own interests and so on. And I think that's caused a lot of trouble in this debate. Mm. So it sounds like um, it's quite heartening to hear, uh, Amanda, about all of these big renewable projects getting kick-started in the heartland of coal territory up there in tropical North Queensland. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of grassroots support and a lot of people and communities and workers get renewables and want the shift, that want the transition. And there's a political debate and a mainstream media debate, which is the reactionary politics that Godfrey talks about, which is pushing that back down and selling another sort of message. But you would think, from the ALP's point of view, there's a real opportunity, political opportunity here, to launch a really vehement campaign policy around renewables, which could seize a a significant sort of political uh, movement. Uh, And yet, from my perspective, it strikes me that ALP coalition pretty similar in sort of trying to support the maintenance of coal-fired power to some degree. Yes, I think it's a great opportunity for Labor. (laughs) Um, What I've been seeing playing out, and especially behind closed doors, is um, in discussions across all sides of politics, it's kind of a we want to have our cake and eat it too. Mm. So if you look at somewhere like Queensland, there is a state interest in coal royalties and, and gas. So, you know, they're kind of like, yes, 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 we'll push renewables, we'll have a 50% um, RET, but um, renewable energy target. So that's the, that's the kind of thing. It's like, it's not just about pushing renewables. There's, we need to have a more robust discussion around climate change and the need to get away from fossil fuels as well. It mm. can't just be that. Because if we don't tackle that, we'll just keep keep going and, and just add to to the system but for real transformative change and getting back to the economic questions and what do you do about grid etc it's about tackling it full on and places like Germany have done that mm. they took 20 years to do it and they did it in an ordered way and they've moved they've moved workers nobody's forced had forced redundancies so it can be done it's just infuriating that we're not seeing that kind of that leadership in Australia yet but I would invite our political leaders to start doing that Um, as I've said a million times, as I always do, I'm a South Australian. We're very proud of our state. But we um, recent, um, recently there was a state election and there was a change in government, as I'm sure you all know. And the Weatherall government was, the former Weatherall Labor government was clearly a, um outspoken advocate for the, the trans, um, uh, the, the transition to a low carbon economy. But what the polling says, what the result says and what the new government says is that in South Australia, acting on climate change, transitioning the economy um, and, uh, and, and uh, building renewable energy and being powered by renewable energy, that's not a debate in South Australia anymore. People support it across the board. Political parties across the board support it. The debate is about how you get there, the role of the private sector um, and uh, and the projects, uh, how much um, government leads on it and how much government incentivises. That's, to me, a massive win and that's where I hope Australia gets to and I hope each of our state governments get to because um, when, it, when you crunch down into the polling that, that was uh, done before the state election, um, Jay Weatherall's personal standing was improved because people saw that he led on this issue and he was decisive and he was showing a vision for the state. And so... 
the issue of renewable energy was not a, a political negative, it was a personal political positive for Jay Weatherill. Um, and uh, as I said, the, the opposition did not, who are now the government, did not campaign against those projects and are now implementing many and creating their own. Okay. I think we're kind of in a bit of a Wizard of Oz moment where we're trying to look back behind the curtain and there's not much there. And I say, I say this not as a partisan shot, but as a very real um, bipartisan, both political and corporate. I don't think the people who run our country know what they're doing. <laughs> I, I genuinely don't. Historically, Australia goes off, okay, what's, what are the world leaders doing? What are their policies that seem to be working? Okay, we're... It helps if they speak English so we can understand that and then we're going to follow it. Whether that was a social democratic turn, whether that was a neoliberal turn, that's just what we do. And now we look around and we go, it doesn't seem to be working in any of the traditional places that we normally take our cues from. What the hell do we do? Uh, if I was going to the election tomorrow for Labor, I'd have a, on, on energy and climate, I'd have, I'd have a very simple proposition. I'd say... We are going to create a national energy authority. We're going to have a mixture in terms of our generation and our distribution, a mixture of state and community-led uh, power. Sure, there'll be a role for the private sector, but that can be in innovating new technologies, not extracting monopoly rents. Uh, and we're going to go and spend money because I don't buy the argument. We can't afford stuff. We've never been richer. Somehow we've, by being third rate, still managed to be pretty rich in the global scheme of things. Uh, so the world's never been richer. We've never, we're very rich in the world. If we can't afford to do this, the answer is when. So I think a Labor Party going to the election saying, we are going to take back the power and we're going to bring this under state control and we're going to plan out that transition and we're going to encourage a decentralised community sector that runs alongside that because we're not going to pretend the state will have all the answers would be immensely popular and I think it would win seats in inner city areas, in outer suburban areas and regional areas. <laughs>